Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shobna Xavier. I hope you are doing well and staying safe. As you may know, in each new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, we select a book that has been recently published and is relevant to the broader field of Islamic studies, and we have a conversation with the book's authors. Sufism in America is now a developed subfield of study that exists at the intersection of Islamic studies, American religions, and popular spirituality. Varieties of American Sufism, Islam, Sufi orders, and authority in a time of transition, which is published by State University of New York Press in 2020, is an edited volume by Elliot Bazzano, who's an associate professor of religious studies at Lemoyne College and also a co-host of New Books in Islamic Studies, and Marcia Hermanson, who's a professor of theology and the director of Islamic World Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. The editors um, in this edited volume capture the complex varieties of Sufism in America. The edited volume is organized around different case studies of Sufi communities in America, which are based on ethnographic studies completed by the contributors to the volume. Some of the Sufi communities discussed include the Nyati Order, the Golden Sufi Center, Mevlavi Order, Lamu Tariqa, Ansari Khadari, Rufai Tariqa, and the Tijani Order, just to name a few. Throughout the different chapters, various themes emerge, some of which include questions of charismatic authority in an era of transition, as well as gender and racial dynamics amongst American Sufi communities. In the process of these dynamic discussions, the collective chapters also decenter easy categories of Sufi communities in America, be they understood or framed as hippie or non-Islamic or Islamic ones by some scholars or even practitioners of Sufism. The volumes focus on lived and embodied realities of various Sufi communities and the amplification of voices of American Sufis themselves, such as through oral histories that we see throughout the contributions, is a fresh and insightful contribution to the growing field of Sufism in America. The book will be of interest to those who write and think about contemporary Sufism, American Islam, American religions, and popular spirituality. In my conversation today with professors Elliot Bozzano and Marcia Hermanson, we spoke about the academic and also the popular development of the study of Sufism in America, the dynamics of insider and outsider as status and the challenges it poses to writing about Sufi communities that one may be studying, Um, Sufi rituals and embodiment, in addition to reflecting on the future of this growing field of study. So without further ado, here's my conversation with professors Elliot Bozzano and Marcia Hermanson about their new edited volume, Varieties of American Sufism, Islam, Sufi Orders, and Authority in a Time of Transition. Hi, Marcia and Elliot. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies to begin our conversation with our guests with something about their intellectual journey and what brought them to this project. And so since we have two of you, I wonder if you could give us a bit of a a short introduction to some of your earlier work and what got you to working on this project. So Marcia, maybe you could start. Yeah, sure. Um, Thank you very much, Shobana. 
Well, varieties of American Sufism, Islam Sufi orders, and authority in a time of transition is a co-edited volume. And uh, I wrote the introduction to the volume, and I'm a co-editor. Elliot authored one of the individual chapters on a specific Sufi movement. But I kind of like to think I wrote one of the first, although you could arguably say that Gisela Webb's um, article on the Bawa Mohyuddin uh, Fellowship was kind of literally came out the first. But um, I actually had been a spiritual seeker even before I went to graduate school. So it was kind of probably Western Sufi movements that brought me to the academic study of Islam and a PhD. Um, and I studied the classical tradition and Arabic and languages. Um, but in the 90s, I was asked to uh, do an article on Sufi movements in the West. And since it had been my personal project to check out any Sufi sheikh that I heard about, I just put together everything I knew and then called up a few friends. And I authored um, that article. I think it came out in maybe 1995 in the Garden of American Sufi Movements, Hybrids and Perennials. So for me, co-editing this volume and seeing uh, the work of um, new scholars in the field, uh, some of whom have also, you know, done participant observation, whether as insiders or outsiders, um, you know, it it um, went very well with the sequence of work that I had done on Sufi movements in the U.S. Yeah, and um, Elliot, did you want to add to your story? Yeah, so my grad work focused mostly on uh, Quranic exegesis, and my dissertation was on Ibn Taymiyyah's approach to interpreting the Quran. And so I think on one level, this seems quite different and distinct from Sufism in the West, which it is on one level. And I'm, I'm happy about that because it makes me feel like I have some breadth in terms of the scholarship I've been able to engage in. But as I mentioned in the chapter, it was encountering this Shadaliya Sufi order in Northern California when I was in high school that really got me interested in religion in many ways. And then I started, I took a world religions class my first semester of college, and then I declared my major. And then that's sort of my story about how I got interested in the academic study of religion. And so throughout grad school and just independently, uh, I did write papers and stuff about Sufism in the West, and I wrote a few encyclopedia articles. And in fact, I can mention, too, that before I met uh, Marcia in person for the first time, which was coincidentally in Morocco, and we can get back to how that came about, I was, of course, very familiar with her work. And as she mentioned, she was one of the first people to really start writing about Sufism in the United States. And so I. You know, I cited her lots as a grad student, and so it's been very exciting to work on the project, uh, having already been familiar with her work, and to, you know, have her as a colleague in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to ask, maybe I should ask separately for both of you, how did this project come to be? And I hear, I feel like I might get different versions of this story. So, Elliot, let's start with you. How did you think this project came to be? Well, so yeah, so I was living in Morocco in 
around 2012. Uh, I was finishing my dissertation and I was associated with a, a center. Um, and so Marcia came to give a talk on Sufism in America. And so I was, of course, very excited and attended the talk. And I reached out to her to see if we could you know, have coffee and talk about our work, et cetera, et cetera. And I had run into her once, maybe at a conference before that, but nothing too substantial. And so this this encounter, as far as I recall it, was just, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, a meeting of two people with similar interests. And it was, it was pleasant, but we didn't make plans for any kinds of projects. And then one of the other people that was associated with the center in Morocco, um, also who lives in America, I was in Chicago like a year later. And this person invited me over to her house for dinner. And I didn't know Marcia was going to be there. But then coincidentally, Marcia was there. And so I think just, you know, so I started asking Marcia about her plans to continue writing on Sufism in America. And I was especially interested if she had plans for a monograph. And there were no monographs at that time. But now, um, you know, two of the con- three of the contributors to our volume including you, Shobana, have written monographs on Sufis in America. So that's exciting as well. But in any case, so in this conversation Marcia and I were having, it was not my intention to suggest that we write a book together. But she, I, I recall her suggesting that she had interest in it and it would be a better experience if she had a co-editor. And then she was like, what do you, what do you think? Is this something you'd be interested in? And I was like, I was like, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, that was, I don't know, around like 2013. So it it took a while uh, to get things sorted out and get it through the pipeline, but it it did happen. And I'm, I think I speak for Marcia that we're we're happy with the finished product. And it took a lot of time, but I think that also reflects that us as well as all of the individual authors put a lot of work into it and proofreading and correcting things. And I'll, I'll say one more thing, because this was a, a special part of the volume as well, is that writing my chapter, Marcia ripped it apart in very appropriate scholar way, scholarly ways in two or three drafts. And I think it, it's all, all the better because of that, even if it was a little bit frustrating to feel like I was you know, working through different kinds of rhetorical strategies and whatnot, but she was really invaluable in helping me polish up my own chapter. Mm-hmm. Marcia, do you have another version to add or maybe? Um... Well, Elliot took me on a, you know, walk down memory lane because I <laughs> remember all of those details, but, um, you know, it is a great community of um, scholars who are working on this topic in various um, engaged ways. And I would say it's, it's um, both a fascinating topic in the academic study of religion. And one of the venues, I think, where Elliot and I also connected as the project was moving along was was of course the conference annual conferences of the American Academy of Religion, and um, that's where you connect with publishers. That's probably where we came to meet uh, some of the colleagues who contributed uh, chapters. Um, so that was a great you know support as we uh, uh, went along. 
Um, and the thing, American Sufism, actually, now it's such a huge topic. Mm-hmm. So I think Elliot would agree that um, we got some of the you know latest and most exciting scholarship in the field from various contributors, but we realized pretty early that we could not cover everything. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. just way much too much. Um, so one one could imagine... You know, um, I don't know, volume two, uh, not that we're planning that, but that's what I'll say on that topic. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you were going to make an announcement here, but no. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, <laughs> um, I wonder if we could talk about the title of the of the book, um, Varieties of American Sufism, Islam, Sufi Orders, and the Authority in Time of Transition. I guess I'm particularly interested in the latter part, Authority in a Time of Transition. So I wondered um, if you could maybe unpack this for us and what was your intention in trying to direct us to some of these, you know, these phrases or these terminologies in your, in your title. And either of you can take this up. Why don't I start off? Why don't I start off? Because I I think I might have been, um, maybe I kicked it off with coining the title. So of course, varieties of American Sufism is a nod to William James and and kind of saying, well, this is the scope of things. And by the way, there's all kinds of varieties. And of course, one of the major conversations in the field is how do we even talk about this variety? And how do we navigate the challenge of normativity? Because some authors, not us, but some folks, I mean, not that it doesn't appear in our volume, but if you sort of sorted these orders like Islamic, non-Islamic, you know, in and, and that that was normative, uh, almost I want to say good Sufism and bad Sufism mm-hmm. or authentic versus inauthentic, right? Like that would be one axis. That's why I in my initial article kind of played with the, um, you know, the garden and the hybrids and perennials, of course, those aren't very rigorous categories. So it gave a lot of scope for subsequent people (laughs) to contest those categories. So right away, we kind of have, we, we let the authors um, explore uh, the orders that they're working on uh, themselves but I know, Shabana, you were interested in the, um, well, I would say the second part, after the colon, there's Islam, Sufi orders, and authority in a time of transition. And, uh, of course, Islam uh, uh, has changed. So most of these orders um, that are discussed in the in the book are fairly recent phenomena in the American context. Not all, of course, everything goes back to Inayat Khan, who came in the early 1900s. But the real explosion, if you will, or proliferation in American Sufism comes possibly in the late 70s or even into the 80s with the arrival of more immigrants. And of course, for Americans, the understanding or the public face of Islam um, uh, is is constantly uh, constantly changing, right? So it's um, h- how is that? How do these orders change over time? So one of the um, uh, original things about many of these chapters is that the authors have spent extensive time with these movements, and they're able to document the way that they have adjusted uh, to. 
both the kind of pop cultural, situ, popular cultural situation of uh, Islam and mu- Muslims, uh, the uh, political shifts in that understanding. So, so that has impacted. So that's the first part. Now, Sufi orders, or a Turuk, the singular Tariqa. So, is that really? I don't know the main identifying factor of a group in America, of a Sufi group in America. And I, I think you have different takeaways from the chapters in the volume. And of course, even uh, beyond the volume more recently, one can say both globally and in the U.S., there's kind of almost beyond the Sufi order. So what do you gain and lose by emphasizing the idea of these traditional Sufi um, Sufi orders, the and of course, what does this, being part of a Sufi order even mean? So Sufism, perhaps for those who are listening and are a little bit new to the subject, is an initiatory tradition. One finds a spiritual master, one affiliates, and uh, these orders have their own traditions and their own practices. So talking about Sufi orders al- allows one t- to say, well, is it mainly about being in a particular movement or order? Or is there a larger Islamic framework that determines authenticity? And we get different answers to that uh, across the chapters. And of course, in a time of transition, yes, the orders are transitioning, American culture is transitioning, religion is transitioning, uh, and Islamic identity is transitioning. Mm -hmm. Elliot, did you want to add anything? I think Marcia gave a pretty thorough account. I would perhaps underscore that we did have to make a decision at some point about focus. And so would we be focusing on Sufi themes or charismatic leaders or things like that? And so deciding to focus on particular orders or movements gave us uh, a certain kind of structure that you know, made us exclude things like, for example, you know, a, a similar kind of book could have had a chapter about like Hamza Yusuf, for example. And so given that who's a very, a very famous, uh, you know, public Sufi scholar and preacher in the United States. But since we were focusing on particular Sufi orders, uh, that didn't make sense. And so I think it was helpful for our authors in that regard to have that kind of focus. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I think the different case studies are really getting at some of, um, you know, the themes of the title, but overall what you're trying to highlight in terms of the the landscape of American Sufism and like the deep complexity that it's, you know, it's embedded in. And and Marcia, you had the challenge of doing the introduction to this, um, to this volume. So um, maybe you could walk us through some of the things you wanted to um, highlight in your introduction, Um, especially in light of someone who's, you know, written on this, since 1995, as you said, what was it like to come back to this and like reflect on it in, in 2020? Um, did you have kind of a sense of nostalgia or was it interesting for you to reflect on the field that you developed? Well, something, uh, you know, uh, the wonderful thing about a topic such as Sufism in the United States so, or Sufism in the West uh, is once you have, um, what shall I say, gotten gotten the basics down and and done an overview of that kind of academic writing can become the gift that keeps on giving, <laughs> which is you can revisit 
your your conclusions and revisit the data every decade or so, right? Because these things are not um, static. Uh, so a, an introduction to a co-edited volume, um, one thing you, you want to do is, of course, highlight and even, you know, briefly summarize the individual chapters. And, um, and that's the latter part of the introduction. And then the earlier part of the introduction is uh, framing the subject. So part of the perhaps challenge or task that uh, the way that I saw it was to uh, speak about the types of orders that are covered in the volume and then just fill in a few of the gaps about the orders um, that were not so much. So I suppose there's a theoretical um, uh, challenge or a theoretical uh, question that Elliot and I, and even yourself, Shobana, could talk about, which is, is really the Sufi order, the Sufi order, maybe like with a capital O order, the most salient feature or are we in the era of the post, what I call, <laughs> what I coined maybe, the post-Tariqa Sufism? So Eliot inevitably mentioned Hamza Yusuf. So certainly in the Muslim community, or let's say the, the growth edge in terms of numbers in Sufism in the West um, are much more diffuse. You know, so sort of post-1995, uh, you have... Um, especially, not exclusively, but probably the majority of young Americans who become interested in Sufism do it through the lens of being the children or grandchildren of immigrants from the Muslim world, kind of getting back to tradition, looking for authenticity. And almost Tariqa, you know, because the image of Sufism changes. So one, you know, uh, it's sort of like, again, the good Sufism, and, and for many of these young people, the good Sufism aligns uh, with um, the practice of Islam and Islamic law, and, and so on. So I, that is not the topic of the individual chapters in the book, uh, but inevitably some of the Sufi movements uh, in America that are covered in the book either... Um, accommodate by becoming more Islamic or, or using more uh, terms from Islamic law or, or awareness, or some of them may barf, bifurcate, or some of them, you know, that that's really not part of their understanding of what being in a Sufi order means. So the introduction takes on these broader framings of what's going on with the image of Is Islam in the West. Um, what's going on uh, demographically. So one of the um, important contributions of the book is that we have an article that focuses on uh, Sufi movements uh, among African-Americans in New York, specifically a, a Tijani Faida uh, movement among African-American Muslims who themselves you know, the author, Rasul Miller, interviews individuals who sort of came through the Nation of Islam and, the, you know, visited um, uh, traditional uh, mosques and then met a charismatic Sufi teacher from uh, Senegal and how their um, uh, ultimate concern, shall we say, uh, uh, personally, spiritually and uh, politically uh, you know, f found a, a a response or found meaning within this particular Sufi order. Uh, so the introduction uh, provides 
um, a, shall we say, a historical and a religious studies uh, context um, uh, to the material in the chapters and also goes a little bit beyond them in situating these particular movements. Mm. Um, Elliot, did you want to add anything? About the introduction and like framing the project? Well, yeah, I mean, Marcia was definitely best positioned to write the introduction because it's kind of second nature to her in terms of a lot of the ideas that, you know, she was dealing with. But as as one of the co-editors, you know, I read each of the chapters several times and I read Marcia's introduction several times. And so I think it was, it was collaborative in terms of making things fit together and referencing you know, different chapters and different points that the authors made. So, so I would say Marcia gave a pretty thorough account of her chapter as well. And I definitely benefited from, you know, making commentary on her, her drafts and also learning from it insofar as it helped frame my own chapter. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we could talk about some of the, the chapters and the content. And, and I think it's very exciting, kind of the group of scholars that you brought together and also the case studies, you know, from the Medlevi Order to the Golden Sufi Center to the Nyati Order. Um, and Elliot, here you have your own chapter as well on your own research. Um, and one of the things I perhaps wanted to ask you about and that you highlight in your work on the Dili Sufi order in America is the kind of the dynamic of insider outsider, especially as you're doing ethnographic work. Um, Because I think that was one of the themes that were kind of weaved throughout all of the chapters that some of the authors were contending with. Um, So I wonder if you could speak to some of this and maybe some challenges you had in terms of thinking about um, this for your own chapter. Sure. So I converted to Islam when I was 18, and then I started college three months later. And so, and then declared my major in religious studies. So, you know, if I want to like try and distance myself a little bit and map out, you know, my different epistemologies or whatever, it's actually very difficult because these two very, you know, life impacting transformations happen right around the same time. So at the same point, I was you know, feeling personally connected to a particular religious tradition. I was also feeling personally connected to this academic major called religious studies, which was very interdisciplinary. And, you know, I took courses on all sorts of things, some good and evil, Jungian psychology and William James and, you know, religions in India, et cetera, et cetera. So my approach to thinking about religion and and, uh, you know, Sufism and Islam as well has been kind of wide ranging in this regard. So when I decided to write the chapter, it was, you know, I had some distance from being 18. So I think at that point, it was it felt a little bit more easy in terms of not feeling like I was getting caught up in, you know, my own biases or whatnot. But yeah, I mean, so I think at at the end of the day for me, it kind of just made the chapter more fun to write because the people I was writing about, it was like, oh, I know these people and I can position it in certain ways because I understand how this community works, you know, in a different way than someone that was just like interviewing folks for the first time. And so interviewing people was really fun as well because these were people that I've I've known for years and years. 
but you know, interviewing them for an academic book, I have my own set of questions and goals, and then they get to respond with their own kinds of particular stories. So that was really fun. So I got to learn about my friends, basically, uh, in the context of how they position themselves in these Sufi orders, and in sort of an in-depth and new kind of way. And then I would say one more thing as well, is that you know, I think, yeah, this whole insider-outsider thing, Marcia's talking about this idea of normativity, and I think, you know, it's hard to go through grad school and think about Islamic studies without adopting certain kinds of normative frameworks, just like from an academic perspective, whether it's, for example, you know, privileging Arabic um, and Arab Muslims over different kinds of Muslims. And one of the things that was really exciting and also challenging for me when I was conducting the interviews was this idea that, I mean, it's like, I know this, but seeing it on the ground is different. Just hearing people talk about the fine lines between belonging to different kinds of religious orientations. And so the the chapter really made me think about, and then also editing the book more broadly and thinking about the distinctions between you know, non-Islamic or un-Islamic or sort of Islamic. These are all imperfect terms. And how that how this just fits into people's actual lived experiences, because in the context of my chapter, um, especially at, at the beginning uh, of the Sufi order's life in America, it was almost exclusively white converts. And so, you know, that kind of demographic could be different than, or is different than the kind of demographic that, Russell Miller writes about, for example. And so, yeah, so the experience of writing my chapter, interviewing people, and then editing the book as a whole, I think it it gave me a more, not just sympathetic, but sophisticated understanding of how complex and complicated people's personal and communal religious identities are. And I think I think it really made me more open-minded in a productive way as a scholar. That's very interesting. I mean, I think even with your chapter and the title, I think of your chapter, um, the Shahadiliya Sufi Order, Traditional Islam Meets American Hippies. Um, and a lot of the other groups, um, such as, you know, um, William Murray Dixon's chapter, the Golden Sufi Center, a non-Islamic branch of the Naqshbandiya Mujahidiyya. Um, you know, um, many are really really struggling with this idea of labeling and categorizations. And I would say I struggle with this a lot in, in my work on this as well. So I wonder if both of you can reflect, I mean, you've both hinted at it and spoken to it, but if you could say more about kind of how do we label, we move away from labels, non-Islamic, Islamic, could be you know, white Sufis. It seems like a lot of the people in the field are really trying to figure this out or, you know, signal to this. It's kind of really deep conundrum of, you know, studying Sufism in the West? Yeah, I think, uh, if, if I can kind of uh, say a little bit that relates to what Elliot just said, and but, but it also, I think, fits with your question, is um, a word that comes into my mind is decentering, right? So Elliot spoke of let's say, normativity within the academic study of Islam. So, so we also have this other conversation about the academic study of religion and the academic study of Islam within that. And if we think back you know, to the way things were in the 70s or even 80s in terms of um, what 
was a desirable field even in hiring, right? So you have all these what various constituencies or frameworks. So one is, you know, who really knows or who do you really want, you know, to be the professor at your institution who's the one professor usually who's teaching um, Islamic studies. And again, it was like Arabic, you know, that th- that's the center. Um, but interestingly, Sufism used to be one of the most desired you know, that would, that was because that was kind of the 60s, 70s, world religions, universality, Sufism, you know, and experience, right? So this is about religious experience. So religious studies is really about the experience of religion, which again, we're back to the varieties and William James, right? Uh, kind of thing rather than text. Um, and I think there's been maybe a, some movement away, some suspicion of that, whether it's suspicion of the insider, suspicion of universe, universality. Um, but, but also I think we are still grappling with, you know, what, what draws, <laughs> what draws students and maybe what, um, what draws us to the study of religion. So the, I don't know the mystery and fascination of some of the movements in the in this book is after all most of these are usually very small almost micro movements right so from the standpoint of sociology of religion how do they persist how are they going to uh, continue or routinize that charisma so I I didn't mention the authority in the title of the book. So one of the things we asked the authors to focus on was um, authority and how do these movements drop, you know, kind of what's in it for the participants and then can that even be communicated to a broader, you know, to a broader audience? Was this something that happens in a certain moment of time that is not going to persist? How are these movements going to remain relevant? How is succession uh, going to be um, navigated and and just you know what is what is the thing that um, makes participation in such a small movement that in the mainstream culture is not very normative you know might be considered odd or eccentric so back to the hippies in Eliot's title yeah that was a thing in the 60s and early 70s but um, you know, what does that look like now? So it's also kind of a decentering of American religion and how to study American religion and a decentering of the academic study of Islam. Defy labels. Yeah. So since we've brought up the term hippies, uh, which I put in my the title and, you know, I wear I wear sandals to class regularly and I'm from Northern California. So I kind of just embrace this in a certain regard about where I come from. And I did my undergraduate work at Humboldt State University in Northern California, which has like a very high concentration of people wearing dreadlocks and, you know, smoking marijuana in public and things like that. And so on a, so I, I intended the title, you know, as somewhat like shock value, traditional Islam meets American hippies. Like, what does that mean? And, but I intend it in a certain non-ironic sense as well, because uh, Muhammad al-Jamal, the, the Shadaliya Sheikh that led the Sufi order that I studied until he died a few years ago, he is 
trained as a, you know, in the traditional Islamic sciences. He worked as a, a judge for the Jordanian government and in Palestine and actually uh, is affiliated with the Hanbali School of Law, which is often sometimes stereotypically understood to be like one of the more strict schools. I think it's more complicated than that, but at least that's the stereotype. And so I think if people are looking at his background, they're going to think like, this person doesn't seem to connect to this weird American term hippies. But at the same time, like in his books and his lectures, a lot of his main themes, uh, he talks a lot about pluralism and love as this quintessential aspect of God. He talks a lot about, you know, organic food and eating well and healing and how, you know, there's these different traditional Islamic practices that can have physical impact on healing. He wrote books about herbal medicine. And so it really is this confluence of these two worlds in many ways. And, you know, maybe I could have come up with a better term than hippies, but that's what we have now. And I'm, I'm glad I'm glad it's there. I think it's kind of a silly word and it catches the eye. And, you know, we learn in our eighth grade English classes that, you know, it's good to get a hook there in the beginning of your essay. So that was also part of my intention with the title. Right. And I mean, it also seems that you're really pushing um, back against this question of authenticity, like what makes an authentic Sufi group, right? Is it the quote unquote Islamicness? Is it the culture, right? And I think a lot of these chapters are like negotiating these in various different ways, right? Um, yeah. 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 And that, that's, that's one thing that was fun about interviewing folks for my chapter as well. And I think this is just like a very human experience, right? When people belong to a community and there might be some kind of authority figure that people have personal relationships with, they might have a different understanding about how to practice their spirituality based on their personal interactions with this person, uh, you know, as opposed to, for example, deriving their understanding purely from like public lectures and stuff. So some of my interviewees would talk about how you know, uh, Sheikh al-Jamal, who they called Sidi, would give them advice that would seem to contradict or go against things that he may have said in public. And so again, this is one of the ways that it challenges me as a scholar to be more open-minded. And that this, I think this just isn't the way spiritual communities work, where it's like there's a set of laws and everyone understands them the same, and that's what they are. And it, it's much more of a discourse and a negotiation and people trying to figure this out together. And the charismatic spiritual leader, if you will, is a very plays a very important role in this process, but nonetheless is a part of the role. And the way people you know, experience their own spiritual journey and interactions with other people in the community uh, certainly also influences how they understand the tradition. And then also when you know people write books about it, how other people understand the tradition. So I, I would say our, our edited volume is very people-centered in a lot of ways. And there's the interviews really give a sense of the subtlety and complexity of the ways that people are relating to these Sufi orders. Mm -hmm. And I would also say a lot of the ethnographic work that's highlighting the ritual practices, like the Mavlevi Order of America Assignment um, Sorgan Prize chapter was 
exciting in that sense that he was really kind of talking about embodiment and you know the even the material culture of the Mevlavis to uh, maybe the practices and the Alamutrika that Julian Huizen is discussing. Um, the actual li- the ritual practices are found throughout the chapters um, and also I guess in my chapter as well on the Baumani Fellowship. Um, you know, that I think is also adding the complexity to destabilize, or as you're saying, Marcian, to decenter some of these labels that people or scholars are using quite maybe easily or flippantly or whatnot to undermine some Sufi groups? Yeah, Shobana, I think um, um, I'm really glad you mentioned that because an, another theme that we find uh, in certain chapters is this uh, embodiment and the relationship to Sufism as something that is culturally uh, transmitted. So Simon Sor- Sorgenfrey from Sweden um, uh, ha- has done extensive work on American Mevlevis. Mevlevis are, you know, the whirling dervishes, they wear the robes. And, and so um, those who join this order um, will spend extensive time kind of mastering um, mastering costume and movement and and uh, gesture, which in a way you could say, well, that's completely what would be going on in the Turkish context in you know learning to become um, a whirling dervish. But but it does you know raise this interesting question about I I don't know many interesting questions right about cultural appropriation and becoming and um, transformation and. And even, you know, how this could be uh, perpetuated. And then at the other end of this, and um, particularly, you know, I'm thinking of our situation right now during this pandemic of everything going virtual. So you have a number of these orders that um, have adjusted, uh, perhaps, I'm not sure what the exact timeline would be, but certainly have become more and more virtual. Right, so one of the challenges to tra- the transmission of charisma that um, draws individuals to these orders is uh, maintaining that relationship with the charismatic figure or leader and being part of a community that embraces that. So how how can this be translated into the online environment? So so you almost have a contrast between you have to be right there and be wearing the robes and be moving your body in a certain way to, you know, you can go online and be part of this kind of global affinity or global affective experience that does not require a particular place or a particular body or a particular physical way of being. So that's a, another kind of decentering and it's almost like multi-centering. Right. Sufism on cyberspace. Yeah. And I think Robert Rosenthal has a book on that with the Nanti order, but in this chapter or in this edited volume, I think Genevieve Mercer Dolphin is engaging with it with the Nanti order. Um, and also um, Melinda Krokos brings it up with the Ansari group. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if we could take a step back and kind of look at the big picture. And do you have any sense or projections of, you know, what 
the, the next kind of iteration of studies on Sufism in, in the West or in America are going to look like or, or what directions that scholars are going? Because um, I think this ethnographic project is kind of the first of its kind in terms of bringing together scholars who are looking at really lived experience of Sufism. But what's your sense of the future of the study? Well, I'll, I'll say something related to this and also what you said earlier just about things moving online and how to how do charismatic leaders, or even I think just like teachers, how do you communicate with people and connect with people when you can't do it in person? And I think, you know, as, as academics and as a lot of academics listening to this, that's like exactly the, the challenge we're facing right now outside the context of Sufi orders mostly. But nonetheless, it's like we have students that we care about and we're used to interacting with them in person. And so how do we how do we adapt and find meaning in this new context? And so I think at least in the, you know, next several months, that's, you know, there's a similar analogy to be made for how Sufi groups are communicating with each other and what happens when you lose the in-person aspect, you know, especially something like a group vicar or remembrance chanting practice. Uh, of course, people do do it virtually, but, you know, it's just, it's like imagining a choir, right? What happens when you have a choir of, you know, 20 people in one room making sounds and hearing each other versus on Zoom where, you know, maybe you're like, did you hear me? Could you make sense? And so, yeah, I think we're, we're in uncharted territory. Well, I'll say, uh, also say something about that because um, it interests me. Yeah. So I think we have the piece of... Um, Sufi studies, and then the piece of act, what's going on with, you know, the the kinds of movements or beyond that um, that are being looked at in this volume. And by the way, one thing that I can say is I'm co-editing another volume with um, Saeed Zarabi Zadeh. He's a European scholar of Iranian origin um, based in Germany. And our volume is about Sufi movements in the West. So I know, Shabana, you're interested in the expression global. Oh, and Shabana has a chapter in that book, by the way. Um, so Shabana uh, speaks about the global West, right? So I think one thing that's going on in the field is that studies of these, of course, these orders were never. So one of the challenges is not only are these orders, you know, to more or less degree, um, have some connection with usually some is Muslim culture, right? Like India, is it India? Is it Turkey? Those seem to be the major ones. So Eliot's Shadalia were a little unusual because they have actually had this link to Palestine or to the Arab Middle East. Um, so there's that, but there's also these teachers might be known in one or another European country, or in the case of the Inayati order. You know, uh, they have followers in in Pakistan or in Turkey, so um, so that that sort of what globalization or or global Sufism or various iterations of Sufism in the West. So one way, so I know Shabana, you're interested in the history of Sufism in Canada, for example. So what does the Canadian context um, bring? you know, kind of uniquely, is there some Canadian, so, so I'm almost thinking of a theory of religion in Canada, like how is it distinct from religion in the United States and how could studies of Sufism uh, shed light on that, right? And, and what are, what are um, all these layers? 
Um, and so, so, so that's one thing about the academic study of Sufism. I know that um, chapter authors uh, for this volume want to get together and form some kind of regular meeting group, which might eventually become an association, right, for the study of Sufism in um, America. And then the orders themselves, like what's the future? I mean, these are pretty small groups. Some of them, I would say, demographically are not attracting a lot of younger people. You know, why, why not? Is it like, you know, the counterculture is graying, is more than graying? Um, what's the future of these kind of groups? So that's another, like, looking to the future, what's the future of these kind of groups? Yeah, all of that is like very exciting. I guess as someone who's invested in the field as well, um, I know we're, I'm very mindful of your time, especially because we all have teaching responsibilities. So before I let you go, um, Marcia, you've mentioned some projects you're working on already, but is there other projects you want to let us know about? And then Elliot, you could also tell us what we could expect from you in terms of projects in the future. Um, I think the most relevant to this conversation is that there's a Brill, Brill um, E.J. Brill, the publisher, is going to have a series of, of handbooks on various aspects of Sufism. So Sufism in the West, <laughs> Global West, whatever, is, um, is just one of those many handbooks. And I'm, you know, one of the editors of that series. Uh, so, so that's something that I'm working on right now. And anyone who's interested in my work can visit my academia.edu site. Maybe that would be the the best place to get up to speed on it. Awesome. Okay. Elliot? Yeah, I'm still continuing to work on Quranic exegesis and Ibn Taymiyyah and of uh, something I've been working on for a long time. So now I'm saying it publicly. So I've got to (laughs) <laughs> get on it, but yeah, looking at polemics between Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Arabi about about Sufism and and normativity. So in many ways, it's like looking at the same questions that Islamic scholars were debating, you know, seven hundred years ago, and then also having you know landed at a liberal arts college. Um, of course, you know, I had a liberal artsy kind of college experience as well, um, but I've also done different kinds of, you know, teaching things with NEH and the Wabash Center. And that's sparked my, you know, scholarly interest in pedagogy and teaching kinds of things as well. And so I see myself getting more invested in the scholarship of teaching and learning, uh, you know, and yeah, and Sufism in, in the West continues to interest me as well, even if I don't have any immediate plans to publish more on the topic at this point. That's exciting. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful to both of you for coordinating and being with me today to have this conversation about your edited volume, Varieties of American Sufism, Islam, Sufi Orders, Authority in a Time of Transition. There's so many wonderful um, chapters and we didn't get to all of them. So hopefully our listeners will pick it up and check it out for themselves. So thank you again. Thank you so thank much, Ravana. And there's a paperback anticipated paperback version early next year. Awesome. Yes. There's, there's, there's a Kindle version available as well. Awesome. Yeah, those are all great modalities to experience the book. Wonderful. Thank you again. So that was my conversation with professors Elliot Bazzano and Marcia Hermanson about their new edited volume, Varieties of American Sufism, Islam, Sufi Orders, and Authority in a Time of Transition. As the editors mentioned, the book is out now in as a hardcover 
and will be available soon as paperback, but is also available as a Kindle version. So thank you again for joining us for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. And I hope wherever you are, you are staying safe and doing well. And I look forward to having you join us again next time. Take care.